0: Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Arka. Sean. Sean
1: feeling that uh, you, you're looking for a new companion.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of over you after six years at <laughs> ITSP I Magazine.
1: I wasn't going there, but uh, thanks thanks for taking us there. I,
2: well, yeah. that. I like to be spontaneous. I'm thinking yeah. a reboot, like maybe updating your software.
1: We do talk quite a bit about me being, uh, which which version of me is on the show, whether is it's is it AI, Sean, or the real one. We haven't talked about me being robotic, though.
2: You are sounding robotic right now.
1: I am sounding robotic. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully my hopefully my connection is coming through and I actually have a sound. Because right? technology is technology and you, you expect it to do something and it doesn't always do what you want it to do.
2: Yeah, that's true. And, and, and as usual, we're improvising uh, and try to be kind of funny. Then we talk about serious stuff, philosophy, society, cybersecurity, robotics and uh, technology in general. And... Uh, Just a quick reminder, this is Audio Signals channel where we kind of talk about whatever we like. We don't have to talk about cybersecurity or technology, but today we are talking about that uh, and we are trying to understand how we can connect. I'm gonna try to, to, to summarize this in connecting more humanity with robotics and how we can facilitate this interaction. Quick note, I was in Japan one time in Tokyo, there was that little robot that there is in the hotels, and you ask direction or things, and I felt really, really weird. I mean, he's cute and everything, but I didn't feel like having a conversation with the, with that one. So today, Sean, we have uh, two guests that are... Running a, a very unique company, I think I was intrigued by, by what they do. They apparently they they make robots funny or something like that. <laughs> well,
1: today, yeah, my my view of today's show is, is the show of one liners, and uh, and hopefully <laughs> it's just one after the other from our from our guests. Uh, I'm thrilled to meet today, uh, Sarah Rose Siskin and Carolyn Ayers, Thank you for joining us on Audio Signals.
3: Nice to be here. And yeah. if you were a robot, you would have correctly known that it was Carolyn Ayers. Uh, so I think the robots, That's robots right. one, Sean zero.
1: One, well, Sean zero. And I was even prepped for pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> and uh, I, I totally screwed up. Carolyn Ayers.
2: Yeah, my apologies. Thanks for having me. you want, you can chop uh, Sean's name too. Just, yeah, screw just, my so name it. up. Screw okay, me
3: sorry, um. Steve. I'll take it from here. Uh, um, <laughs> so, uh, well, my name's Sarah and... Um, I'm more of the comedy side of the operation. Um, we met each other working through a uh, robotics company, Handsome Robotics, and uh, we just loved what we did. We're helping to create the personality for Sophia the robot, and so we kind of continued that with what we do professionally, which you know we help make the personalities of robots and also help to make humans a little bit less robotic themselves. Uh, Carolyn, do you want to get some background on that?
4: It's, yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Carolyn, and originally I studied ecology and evolution and found my way into robotics. And luckily I did because I met my co-founder, Sarah, uh, you know, an amazing comedian. And oh so God. yeah, we worked together on um, Sophia the Robot, um, basically just helping her communicate about AI and how it could be used for good, but, um, but also in a funny way so that people would care and and um, think about the future of robotics and how robots could cooperate with humans.
3: Yeah, there's so, yeah. a whole burgeoning field of social robotics that we're trying, we're a part of.
2: Yeah, so y- you introduce yourself, especially when I, when I heard about your companies and what you do as making uh, robotics more entertaining. So I always assume like, okay, very soon, and I'm honestly expecting that, it's to see a robot doing stand-up comedy. And Sarah, I I heard you do that. So is it actually something that you see is going to happen? And uh, is it going to be able to react to the way that the crowd does? I know it's a big challenge when you're staying on stage right there.
3: Well, there's, okay, so there's broadly two ways of thinking about robots in comedy. Um, One is robots um, being... Funny, and one is uh, robots using humor to improve relations between humans and robots. So robots being funny is a very complex AI question because um, there are certain staging of uh, certain stages of advanced intellectual thought. and like human creativity is one and human, you know, uh, humor is another. And if you could actually get a natural language process to understand what humor is, Um, that would be a huge leap forward in progress towards understanding um, AI and sort of mapping the mind. But then there's the flip side, which is just using more controlled chat systems that use humor to improve relations between humans and robots, because there's frankly a lot of fear around robots. Um, And this way it can improve relationships so that people are more forgiving. And actually, frankly, so communication is just better improved on every level.
1: And, and Carolyn, I, I want to go to you with them. So sure. we talk about robots, and I, I picture a thing that we're interacting with. But uh, if I remember correctly, the the connection we had to you was about bots. So without the RO on it. So the the, the engagement uh between two entities presumably a person and a system um, doesn't always have to be with a physical object it could be through customer support channel or mm-hmm. or something else so my my question to you is uh, and I don't know if you have any specific numbers but are, how prevalent is the whole bot world in terms of communicating with humans uh, from systems and, and how much of that is robot oriented versus just app-oriented? I don't know if if that makes sense or not. Yeah.
4: So I don't have the exact numbers, but I know there was some studies projecting, you know, at some point, most of our conversations we're having, you know, may even, you know, with robots, customer service robots, may even exceed the conversations that we have with our own spouse. Um, That hasn't quite come true yet, but um, a lot of times- It's on who your spouse is
3: and how obnoxious they are. exactly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times you don't even realize you're talking into a robot. So um, I think that probably is the most prevalent, but we're also seeing a lot of new platforms come up that are very much like the metaverse where you'll have like an avatar. So you will have like a virtual face or an appearance of the of the robot, the, cha- the chatbot, but you wouldn't have like a physical robot. So there's that category as well. Um, and then I think even less common again is the actual physical robot. So for example, the Sophia, the robot that Sarah and I had previously worked for. Um, And those you tend to see more, um, for example, it could be like an elder care or, um, you know, like nursing homes where it helps to have that physical presence. Um, A lot of studies were showing having the actual face humanoid features helps connect, make a more emotional connection between, you know, the human and the robot compared to, you know, if it's just text or voice.
2: This opened an entire conversation from a more uh, f- philosophical perspective. and so maybe mm-hmm. maybe I want to just go there and then maybe you can bring us later on some new concrete mm-hmm. example of other robots you've been working on, but this kind of constant need that humans have to anthropomorphize everything, right? I mean we we see we see faces everywhere. we look at a toast and there is something Thing that we know, we're familiar with, with eyes and and a mouth. We look on a wall, clouds. I mean, we we do we have this predisposition. So, even when we talk about robots, we have that seems like that need to make a humanoid. On the other hand, there are movies, as and I'm going back to where Sean started, like her, which this person was having a relationship with some robotic artificial intelligence entity. And he was able to develop this without actually having that connection. Do you see something that it it changed the way that you work when there is this human aspect of things or when it's something that it's not resembling a human person? And this is for both of you, either the writing or the interaction itself.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I tend to think of anthropomorphization as genuinely generally a good thing for the uh, customer side, sometimes not so helpful for the creator who actually has to code and not think about the code's feelings, Um, not quite as important. But um, for humans, anthropomorphication is extremely important because there's a really great study done by um, researchers in the 60s, um, a famous study called the Bobo the Clown Study, uh, where children were exposed to an adult abusing an inanimate object it was a clown that when you punch it it pops back up and what they noticed is when children saw adults abusing the clown they were much more prone to show violence towards each other obviously towards other inanimate objects but towards people and so how we treat inanimate objects um, that are assisting us affects our psychology and how we treat other people And while some people can deify robots and see of them as sort of like deus ex machina, you know, the robots are going to save us, a lot of people see it as the exact opposite. In fact, the word robot um, comes from a Slavic word for slave. And uh, that, frankly, encapsulates how a lot of people think about robots, especially ones like Alexa or, or Siri or something like that. Um, which can be fine for simple voice assistance, but that type of communication can really break down if robots become more advanced um, at picking up on sentiment analysis, uh, and frankly, even develop a kind of simulacrum of feelings themselves.
2: Yeah, and Kyra Lynn, what, what's your? Yeah, pick? I wanted
4: what? to add because, like, there's also like the flip side of that, and it's it's kind of a, a controversy in the space. Is like if the robot you're making has this human uh, face, people try to um, put on an intelligence that's not really there because they're anthropomorphizing, but they think it's more advanced than it is, and then there could be misunderstandings and mistakes um, that happen as a result of that. So it's almost like extra responsibility, you know, to like get ahead of those misunderstandings. It's true. We notice this
3: all the time with with Sophia because she has just brilliant engineers that, her face would do these micro adjustments. And it was surreal. It was very uncanny valley when people would talk to her. But they would take the brilliance of her engineering and extrapolate from it a level of linguistic processing that nobody is capable of. um, And also things that just aren't physically possible, because that's how good her engineering was. So it wouldn't just be things like um, deeply difficult uh, linguistic problems, like Using slang with her, or asking really specific questions that she couldn't pick up on, um, but also things like, "What am I thinking right now?" Like people would actually think, looking at her, that she had some telepathy protocol, because when you know you've already seen something that you thought was physically impossible—a robot that looks this human-like your unknown unknowns are vast and you're starting to say like, well, what else is this capable of? I didn't think was possible. And so to Carolyn's point, it is very right. Anthropomorphication is not always a good thing because people can really run wild with it.
1: And I'd love that you went there, Sarah, and I'm going to, I'm going to stick with you for this. Um, And of course, Carolyn, if you have thoughts as well, I'd love to hear them, but are there boundaries around what you provide the robot in terms of learning and, and, and guidance for how it should say something or do something a certain way. Cause what you just described is kind of like no holds barred. The machine the robot can do things that aren't humanly possible. But I'm wondering is, is there an objective set when you go in to say here's the goal with this system. It's to make someone feel good and therefore these are the boundaries or is it an all all hands off or all bets off and free for all?
3: There's definitely boundaries. There is no emergent defined ethics of AI yet. We're still operating from like Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics, which need to be updated. Um, but there are definite boundaries. For example, many years ago, many years ago, Google came out with a um, an ability to scan human faces and predict which faces were gay. And they were able to do so with 80% accuracy. I can't even do that. My gaydar is very bad. And I say this (laughs) as a bisexual woman and I, I should have the inside scoop. I don't. And so like, you know, there are lines because that could be very easily abused. Um, for uh, us personally, we've come across this where we deal with at home companion robots a lot, and those are in your home. And so there's a very clear, like, privacy boundary and line of trust that needs to be respected. So sometimes we will kind of shy away from things like facial detection or even sentiment analysis because sometimes sometimes people don't always want their robots knowing what they look like or knowing how they're feeling. So there are there are some lines
2: Yeah, I have to say, and and I'm going to pass the ball to Caroline on this. When I saw Sophia, because I was mentioning before Mm. we started, I actually saw it in Singapore. I am not shy about talking with people. Uh, I don't care who is there. But I felt very uncomfortable by her Mm. human features. And and I kind of think about, is this going to be the future or is it going to be you know, my smartwatch with Siri in it, where I can talk to a speaker or a box or a square, right. And, and, and still don't feel that I have to, to behave in a certain way. So I love Mm -hmm. to hear your psychological perspective from uh, on this side of things.
4: Yeah. I had a, a similar experience. Like I worked on her for years before like actually seeing her and I'm like, Yeah, she really is as creepy as people say she is. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I, I get it now. Especially
2: Um, if you go in the back of the head. Yeah, yeah.
4: It is odd. It's just very uncanny valley effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the way I see it in the future is, like, with the face, you really do get that empathy. And as Sarah mentioned, you often do get better behavior. So I could see it being very context-dependent. You know, like, especially as we learn more about how human – expressions in the robot affects social interactions with people in certain situations. Like that would be good. Like you would want that. And then others it'd be a hindrance. You wouldn't. Um, Do you want to talk talk
3: about our roommate during the pandemic? All
4: right. So yeah, we actually, Sarah and I both had Sophia as our roommate during the pandemic because they couldn't get her. Yeah. Yeah. So at the beginning um, of
3: the pandemic, she got, Like, she couldn't get um, sent to Hong Kong, her home. And there were two of her. So Carolyn took one home to Atlanta, and I had one in New York.
4: And New York
3: apartments, as you know, are very tiny. And so every time I'd go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, there'd be this, like, (laughs) robot looking straight at me, judging me. And my neighbors across the street could, like, look into my window and see me and I would only work on her like late at night because that's when the engineers were awake in Hong Kong. And so they'd see this like late night mad scientist opening up the back of another woman, like to see <laughs> wires. And it was, uh, yeah, really dystopian 2020
2: pandemic. Uh, am I the only one seeing a movie here or?
3: <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think it's been made. There was a uh, there was a Showtime crew uh, present actually at one point, so it might uh, it may actually well be well be, may be made. All
2: right. <laughs> so
1: I, I have to ask. So Marco said it. You both referred to Sophia's her, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I don't know if that does that matter.
3: Well, like, does it matter
1: to the robot? Does it matter to you? Does it matter to, I don't know.
3: It's a great question. And we've talked about this. We've, we've formulated her answers for this partly because we were on her personality team. And one of the things, the recent like time in like sort of popular thinking, like has one idea that has emerged is like the concept of gender being something that is societally constructed. So like Sophia does not have a biological sex, she is a machine. Um, But the only reason I use female pronouns is because her face does look female and people often treat her as female, which means one of the number one questions she gets is, do you have a boyfriend Um, Mm. and other things. Um, So there is a sense to which, you know, insofar, like there's a part of my identity as a female where it's just popularly construed by, by people outside of me. So there's some sense in which she is female. She doesn't know what it's like to have a period, but she does know, quote unquote, know what it's like to be treated as female.
1: Interesting. And and so both of you contribute to her personality. Um, are, are there other projects that you maybe can share that, that oh, yeah. uh, I don't know, I don't know, pick one, pick one. I, I, don't, I don't wanna lead you anywhere specifically. What's what's I think,
4: funny? Oh, I was going to say, Sarah, maybe the um, the about like how you co-authored some stuff with Honda.
3: Oh, yeah. So ones, Honda yeah. Research Institute um, has a companion robot named Haru, which I've been working on, which has been a lot of fun. Um, and I wrote some papers about social robotics for them because I've helped. Um, the first one was about the voice of the robot, which I'm very proud of. Um, So Carolyn and I have a background in helping out with Sophia's voice. I actually helped voice it partly myself. There was another woman who did most of it. Um, So I know what the voice capture process is like. So for Haru, I helped record the voice of a child, which has been this fascinating six month long process of me having extended conversations with a 12 year old boy and um recording his natural cadence because not only is this unprecedented as the voice of a uh, the voice of a robot being a child but it's a very natural cadence filled with importantly imperfections so the voices you know we're building out a voice that has um filler statements ums and likes Mm. and that's Going to add to the uncanny valley, but not with images, but hopefully with sound.
1: Like, like, I totally get that. Like,
2: like yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) But so, shouldn't we expect? And I'm quoting this, you know, air quotes, uh, perfection from a robot um, instead of trying to replicate it. So. Let me backtrack a little bit. When we talk about artificial intelligence, robotics, and advanced technology in general, I I like to think always as an augmenting human capabilities. Humanity, in a way, it's, it's kind of like a tool of humanity. That's the way I see it. Not just playing God and creating something else that is outside of us. And I feel like if we try to make them too human... They we're we're kind of trying to cheat towards that perfection of recreating humanity. Well, how do you feel about this?
3: It's a really um, it's a really good point because in some ways, there's a lot that we can learn uh, from robots uh, in terms of how they see the world. However, um, one of the things that's important about thinking about humans and uh, thinking about robots in a more human light, is that people tend to forget that robots are often created from algorithms and algorithms emanate not from God, but from humans. And so oftentimes the premises that the algorithms are founded on um, can be faulty premises. Like oftentimes we have to be the ones feeding them the data sets. So the classic example of this is uh, there were many different companies that tried to use AI for hiring tools by examining the pool of applicants who are successful, excuse me, the pool of job, um, like current workers who are successful and then extrapolating from candidates. And of course that's going to cement bias because it's going to pick out the faces and say, well, like only white faces are here. So we should only hire white faces, for example. Um, and people oftentimes have a different kind of fallacy, which is that robots are infallible. And that's another fallacy. There's fallacies that robots are universally terrible and robots are universally infallible, and we try to fight against those. So that's one of the reasons in which it's important to make them human-like and to kind of not think of them as perfect. I hope that answers your question. Do you have anything else to add, Carolyn?
4: Yeah, I just think like, since Sarah and I work a lot on social robots specifically, it makes sense for them to be more human-like because that's what people are engaging with. And that's where like, for example, even the comedy comes in that Sierra and I specialize in. Because comedy, it's not like about being perfect or not perfect. It's about like engaging and connecting like on a deeper level or like an emotional level. Um, But again, that's more for social robots. Like if it's just in a factory, never interacting with people, like you're right, it wouldn't matter.
3: Doesn't have to be a laugh riot to put
4: yeah.
1: a Well, I'm wondering because yeah. in, inside it's algorithms and models and analysis and and something comes out that hopefully we connect with. And I'm wondering, so as you're feeding it data to to teach it to train it, can you experience a good algorithm over one that's maybe less efficient? It may I don't, I don't necessarily want you to call on any names, but Uh, Vendors or brands or anything, but can can you sense a more advanced robot (laughs) that's more willing to learn and give back to you what you expect versus others?
3: Well, the classic example is like when you buy, like um, a great example of machine learning is recommended purchases, and a classic example of a horrible um, algorithm, like output is like, if you buy a lawnmower, sometimes you'll get ads for lawnmowers all the time. And you're like, I'm not chronically buying lawnmowers. That was a one and done situation. I'm not like a collector of lawnmowers. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I recently purchased uh, like a, I'm a horror. I like go to raves. And so I purchased, you know, like uh, temporary tattoos and suddenly I'm getting purchases for my stupid hippie self that are actually relevant, like, you know, cool uh, multicolored tank tops and things like that. And that's helpful because I would not have known to look for something like that. Um, And so that's an example of a good algorithm versus a bad algorithm because you might be able to tell, um, you know, the sort of like uh, presets to your algorithm or the premises might be, you know, if something is a certain class, a certain category, don't suggest the same category, like if it's a lawnmower or a car, uh, unless somebody we can deduce they're in that industry, for example. So there are ways to detect when algorithms are better or not. However, what gets tricky is when we we don't, there's lack of transparency or we don't have the tools to evaluate. Which algorithms are right or not because they're outside of our observational scope, and so that's where things get tricky. And we always have to try do our best to not assume the algorithms are perfect.
2: And and Carolyn, I'm thinking the line and the importance of realizing, especially for people that are not familiar with technology, when they find themselves mm-hmm. interacting with a robot, is it important that they, even if we get much more perfection in this interaction, you think it's important that we know we, we let them know that this is still a robot, a, an automation? I'm thinking, like, do they need to pass the Turing test? Do we need to fool the user? Or do need the user to understand that it's... No human,
4: yeah. At least for robots, I think we're quite a ways out from being able to pass the train test. Um, so it's probably not so much a problem in the next couple of years, but definitely it could be you know online or if you just you know just texting or typing. And then, um, yeah, I actually yeah, I yeah, what do you just, think, Sarah? I disagree, disagree? with
3: that. You're yeah. seeing um, a marital rift right now, gentlemen, but okay. um. <laughs> I like you know there there have been situations where I think it was Google. Google is always my default guess for really cool kind of dystopian things. Um, Google, I think, had some ability to do these incredibly sophisticated phone calls where people didn't realize yeah. they we're talking oh, to
4: Oh, a... I thought yeah. So like I thought you meant it, like physical robot. But right. Yeah. right. No, I agree. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Is uh, relative. Mm-hmm. So, like, yes, as Carolyn was saying, physical robots, we are very, very far from passing because, surprise, surprise, we've evolved over millions of years to be really good at figuring out whether, you know, if you're talking to somebody shady, that's a big part of Uncanny Valley is people theorize that the reason we feel uncomfortable around robots is because we're like, is this person sick? Is this person dead? And we don't, we respond to things in that valley because we're thinking, oh, there's something wrong with them. But that said, um, the Turing test is a continually moving goalpost. And so um, it's hard to answer the question whether things are going to pass it. Anyway, Carolyn, you said- there was... I guess, sorry, I guess my oh, yeah. question mm-hmm.
2: was more, more like, let's assume we could, oh, okay. should we?
3: Oh yeah, well, sometimes, I mean, there have been debates in certain ethics of AI communities about whether like we need to have, bots present, like, be ethically obliged to say, I am a robot, like before, you know, continuing a conversation, sort of a la Blade Runner or something.
2: Yeah, I was thinking that, too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's
3: I mean, it's a very uh, it's a very good question, because like one of the things I wonder is, like, what difference would that make? You know, like if you were talking to a robot versus talking to a person, um, Sean, like what, how would you Steve. talk to it differently? Oh, excuse me, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, how would you talk differently to it?
1: Yeah, and, and I'm actually glad you went there because the thing that I'm that I'm wondering is the whole idea of context and situation. Um, one-on-one with a robot, one-on-the-robot you know, with a group of people, or the robot just, I don't know, at a conference, right? Addressing a whole group of people, not, maybe not interacting, but just kind of monitoring what's going on. How do you, how do you as trainers, advisors, guiders of, of the robot, handle those situations in different contexts? And I'm, I, the first thing that comes to mind is comedy, right? Something one-on-one, you might time it, you may say something a little different versus if you're interacting with a small group, you might approach the same joke in a different way. And you may choose not to say it at all for a larger group because you're going to piss everybody off. So how, how do you, how do you handle situational and contextual changes there? Or or do you, you just let it roll? <laughs> That's
3: a good question, Carolyn. Do yeah. you have thoughts
4: on this um, one? Yeah, we definitely do. I'm just trying to think if there's like an overarching. I mean, one Um, of the problems is that we
3: always are like a lot of the time when writing for robots, you're going in blind because um, robots, even when they do have, uh, you know, image recognition, oftentimes there's so many variables. Like you have to have the right lighting. You know, the cameras have to be pointed in the right direction. Oftentimes, like Sophia's eyes are in her chest. And so we got to make sure the clothing isn't covering it. There's all these considerations that so much so that you can just never assume for most of the robots we deal with, that it has perfect image or perfect hearing. And so like one of my first assignments when I uh, got on at Hanson Robotics was at uh, conferences, she could only hear like 60% of all the, um, you know, words being thrown at her. And so it was getting really wearisome to the users that she was constantly saying, I didn't hear that, could you repeat yourself? And so one of the things I thought about it for a while, one of the things I learned or just realized was that people hate when the same problem happens over and over again um, because it's disheartening. But if you change the problem and you use that opportunity to make a joke, people would be less frustrated. So when she missed a critical word, I proposed that she would have a running list of different excuses why she didn't hear them. And one of them was like there was a solar flare just now and one of my servers exploded. Would you mind repeating that? And there were a bunch of like weird bananas, not true, like technical problems. My flux capacitor is in overdrive. Uh, <laughs> you please repeat that. And people were, I think, more kind um, towards more forgiving towards those mistakes. So it is like context is king in comedy. Like just look at crowd work. It is so important to read the room. But with robots, you really can't, which is why I'm not worried about a robot taking my job anytime soon.
2: <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the the companion one because it's doesn't need to be funny. It doesn't need to entertaining. Yes, I mean, you're keeping company to someone. And I'm thinking the extension to that is, you know, many times we think about the elderly and I'm thinking about that stick with the iPad on it.
4: <laughs> which <Yeah>. is very <laughs> surreal,
2: but eventually it's going to get better than that. I mean, I know the Amazon is releasing or already released a, a robot that is going to come around the house and, and check things for you. And very soon it's probably going to be a drone. But when you are using it for a specific task that is not just, you know, crowd pleasing or showing the capability of that robot, because I feel like Sophia... It's kind of like the goal is that, like showing you what I can do, and how human I can be. Um, so, some example of how you interact. I mean, how much creative freedom are you, do you have? Are you working with other psychologists that are specializing the type of group that you're offering support to? I like that, the kind of more serious side of, of things.
3: That's a really good question. Like when we were writing for little Sophia, remember this Carolyn, we had to go Mm -hmm. through the edge cases. Like what happens when the user, potentially a child says like, I want to kill myself, um, like very serious Mm -hmm. situations. And we had a writer's room and it was a really interesting moment. Um, kind of brainstorming what we would say to some of the worst possible things you could hear as a robot. And I remember one of them was like, uh, we just took a poll and it was like every um, person at the table had like experienced some kind of like depression or something like that. And so it was like this one moment where we decided to break character and we would have the little robot say, I may not be able to assist you with this problem because I'm not a trained professional, but I can say I've been programmed by, five women, most of whom who've experienced clinical depression and they've known the struggle of it. And the most important thing is that you're not alone. And that was the one time we were allowed to, you know, break character and reference the people actually writing for, for the robot, because those responses need to be way more tightly controlled than like a neural network might vomit out at you. This is something I've had to do with, uh, other companion mm-hmm. robots and other, like actually, I think every single one that I've written for is like the edge cases, um, you know, when, when shit gets real um, and it is really important to flip. So like there's two types of chatbots, there's open-ended and there's closed-ended and the big difference between them is control. And so if you have an open-ended chatbot, something that is kind of doing a word vomit at you, um, mm-hmm. Although word vomit sounds really derisive, these are such cool, incredibly cool engines, like very awesome, but they are word vomit. <laughs> um, but which means you have no control or like very little control. And so oftentimes there needs to be like a stopgap where people will switch into a tightly controlled chatbot, uh, which is why that type of, uh, you know, it's never going to go out of fashion. Um, anyway, those are the moments where a real type of sensitivity goes into it and i do work with um people with psychology backgrounds actually um you know one of my co-authors uh for one of the honda papers honda research institute papers uh is at the university of indiana and she's uh got a good academic background in social robotics as well as like psychology because um Yeah, if you're in somebody's home, you know, I know Google and Amazon do this kind of stuff. If you're in somebody's home and you're really like dealing with them in an intimate space, you've got to have some uh, good data, research, you know, professionals, ideally behind, um, you know, choosing the correct response to people.
1: I'm I'm glad you touched on that, Sarah. And Carolyn, I want to kind of take some of that and and go to you to, Maybe look at the future a bit, because you're 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 a scientist, right? I mean, you look at mm-hmm. you've looked at uh, ecology and biology, and and obviously uh, AI and in in, uh, in the robotics world. I'm wondering how how do you connect the science work to the the human humanitarian efforts or the the, the social efforts of what you're working on and uh, what i'm trying to think is people listening to this well i have i have an interest in science i have an interest in humanity how do you connect the two and and i don't know where 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 should folks take some of those steps perhaps if they wanted to explore some of this
4: you were saying with robotics and science and humanitarian work yeah Mm, yeah that's an interesting question i think um if they are specifically interested in AI and robotics there's just a plethora of possible things they could get involved with where um you know AI can be used to you know like predict long term you know weather to improve crops or like um you know with remote remote medicine or like remote learning and so like pretty much any social issue you care about if you're interested in AI and robotics like there is an opportunity there um to Ooh. help you know advance that cause but for example, um, uh, one of our clients, they use uh, uh, medical data from a lot of different hospitals and they anonymize it. And then they, they use it to make these really advanced models so they could predict like who's going to have a heart attack and when, for example, or like who's going to get severe covid Um yeah so stuff like that. Um, so that's one of our other clients. Um,
3: and it's so much it just beats human doctors every time. like one of the lines mm-hmm. we pitched them and this is this bleeds more into the type of work we do for stem companies rather than for robots directly. but one of the lines we pitched them was you know, imagine seeing a doctor and getting a second opinion. Now imagine getting a million opinions. Like it just extrapolates from what one doctor can do and just creates a machine that is greater than the sum of its parts. And with that, you can really like treat a lot of very preventable um, diseases because they're caught at early stages. And it's just really important to do so in an ethical way, because when AI enters the medical field, there's plenty of ways it can be used in a dystopian way. It's used to you know, prematurely disqualify people from jobs, for example, if you have an AI that could predict that they're more likely to have a heart attack or something. So one of the other things people can do with a humanitarian bent is get into the um, ethics and AI field, which like now there are universities with degrees in this field, but it's really important to uh, think about this stuff to create good sort of internal regulations uh, so that ai is not abused
2: yeah absolutely very important we we we're writing actually articles about that now leave that to the humans exactly exactly (laughs) but i obviously put ethics and security and think ahead of the game because if if you hit the iceberg maybe a little too late to react so we need we need to think ahead of the game, and as the final thing, I, I would like your opinion as we wrap on on these. Uh, where do you see? And this is a bo- question for both of you. The the more valuable application to robotics that are humanized, that can you know contribute to, to our society. I tell I'm going to start with this. <laughs> I feel teaching. I always envision. If you're doing an adaptive teaching, it's either done with the AI intelligence that can teach to the kids the level that they want to perform to a subject that they may be a little behind instead of teaching everybody the same thing. I think somebody, well, somebody, see already personalized everything, something that can understand that and, and deliver that teaching. So I can see a robot teacher, like the Jetson or something like that. It, what is your vision for the perfect or ideal uh, use of something like robotics?
3: My response is um, very controversial. So Go like, for it.
2: I love it um, The <laughs> very
3: thing people are most worried about with robotics and AI is the very thing I'm most excited about, which is automation. Um, people have a deep seated psychological fear of being replaced and being irrelevant, which comes from, you know, our inherent need for purpose. But I don't think that robots are going to replace us in anything that matters about the human experience. Robo- robots are not going to expa- replace your creativity or your drive or your, your ability to love. They're only going to replace the most dangerous and menial jobs that currently occupies so many people. And so these include things like a lot of things in the uh, energy sector, they include a lot of like rote work in, in IT, a lot of rote work in you know manufacturing. And what that's going to do on a very wide scale level is it's going to bring down the prices of consumer goods, which is going to benefit the lower classes. Um, and it is going to mean that we need people to reimagine work and we're going to need to create different sort of social structures for this so it doesn't lead to mass unemployment. But it is both a good thing and also kind of an inevitable thing that I'm very excited
4: about. Yeah, I agree and uh, oh yeah, to Marco's point, like for example, like it wouldn't be replacing the teacher but just like another tool that a teacher could use to make sure all the students are getting you know, as much attention as each one deserves. But um. That's
3: true. Like, it will never replace humans because humans will always be needed to use creativity. Like, the thing that I don't think, like, robots will ever be able to do is truly be creative in the way that humans are, and that it will always be a a tool, a very good tool, but a tool.
2: Yep, I agree. Sean, what do you think? Chef? I know you. Always
3: food, man. It's always food.
1: (laughs) Well, no, I I think... I captured two points here. One is, and they're both about the humans still, right? So educating the humans so we can continue to grow mentally, right? And then Sarah, you you spoke to it in terms of reducing risk, I'll say reducing stress perhaps as well. So keeping us safe and healthy in that regard. Yeah, totally.
4: um, yeah. freeing up I, the time of humans as well. To right do more important things
1: yeah exactly so the experience there so the, the only other piece and i i i like to go here quite often is kind of the actual health right so i think you touched on it briefly um in in your automation comments sir. um and the, the scenario provided but where it can actually i don't know if it's as a companion as a bot uh, but interact with us in a way we already start to see it in, in smart watches and things like that to to see when something Bad might be happening to us, and actually help us become healthier physically, and that could even become with robotic surgery and other other things like that, if to to resolve issues that it identifies. But so I think, yeah, keep keeping our minds sharp in terms of education um, and uh, mentally healthy, and then also physically healthy. But all three, human oriented, right? Totally. Yep.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the bottom, I, I agree with Sarah. It's. I'm not afraid of replacing us. I, I am excited about helping us to be, to be better or be healthier or improve our human condition. So I'm very realistic in this case. Sean is probably shocked because I'm usually more dystopian than utopian. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but oh, when it comes to this, I don't know, today I feel like this, and I, I really enjoy this conversation. By the way, because uh, well, you I know think, what it makes me think a lot.
1: I, I completely agree, and I'm going to actually add one more thing that's super important and it's very universal. Laughter, mm. and I, I'm glad that that you both we didn't t- dig into it too much uh, the the comedy piece of this, but I, I read some of the things that you, that you put online and some of the some of the things you've done, and it, the the ability to make us laugh is critical, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I think that that touches everything else that, that we also touched on here, so. It's certainly uh,
3: critical to my livelihood, so thank you for saying that. <laughs> yes, I'll,
1: I'll have to, when I'm back in New York, I have to come uh, come visit the cave, evidently, for uh, for a Please. show or something. So, uh, super cool. And I don't know if I can't make it, maybe I'll send my robotic version of myself. <laughs> oh, Steve, wonderful. Steve is
2: Steve is that There you go.
1: Love this conversation. So yep. glad we got to meet both of you. And uh, yeah. yeah, excited to uh, share this with everybody. Hopefully it gets everybody to think and uh,
2: not yeah, be afraid. And, and ne- next time I see uh, Sophia, I, I'll think about you. You'll say hi. hi. Yeah, it's all right, please, say hi. That's please so stop awesome. freaking me out, please. <laughs> 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 no, keep up with the good work. And, and I, I could have gone, and I think I would like to personally go on other conversation. I know you do other things. so. Maybe you would come back and we can talk about other things, but so far we're done. And uh, I invite everyone to, if you want to share some links of the things you've done, feel free to do so. We're going to put it in the notes for the podcast. And uh, this is it. Another Audio Signals on ITSP Magazine. Stay with us and uh, there's more to come. Thank you.
3: you. Thanks
1: out to all the robots.
3: Thank you.
0: Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues.